Three U.S. soldiers have been killed and another injured in a helicopter crash in Alaska during a training flight. It's Friday, April 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is laying out plans to lift pandemic border restrictions. Also this hour, the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking government documents was able to get a firearms license after being denied twice. We hear from a former attorney for the state's Firearm Licensing Review Board about what the reasoning may have been behind that decision. And more than half of gun-related deaths in the U.S. are suicides. People don't want to accept that This is happening all the time. We'll hear about a new effort to bring gun rights advocates into the suicide prevention field. Mostly sunny and near 60 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russian missile strikes on two Ukrainian cities have killed at least 14 people, according to Ukraine's Interior Ministry. It's the first large-scale attack in Ukraine in about two months. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv, air defenses shot down missiles aimed at the Ukrainian capital. Most of the dead are in the city of Uman, south of Kyiv. A Russian missile hit a nine-story apartment building while most people were sleeping. Ukraine's Interior Minister Ihor Klemenko spoke on local television while standing in front of a damaged apartment building, still smoldering from the missile attack. Security services have opened a criminal investigation. Forensic specialists are coming from Kyiv to help document this war crime as soon as possible. Russian missiles also hit the central city of Dnipro, killing a 31-year-old woman and a 2-year-old child. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Heavy fighting is still reported in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, and western parts of the country. This comes as the military junta running Sudan and the powerful opposition paramilitary forces say they have agreed to a new three-day ceasefire. More than 500 people have been killed in nearly two weeks of fighting and thousands injured. Tens of thousands of people are trying to flee Sudan. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports on the precarious situation at Sudan's border crossing with Egypt. Egypt's foreign ministry says more than 16,000 people have already crossed the border from Sudan since fighting broke out. Around 14,000 Sudanese have so far crossed into Egypt. Some 2,000 others are foreign residents of Sudan. The border crossing is one of the few options available to Sudanese trying to flee the violence. Meanwhile, Sudanese men under 50 years old are not being allowed into Egypt without a visa. The journey to Egypt's border from the capital Khartoum is dangerous and costly. The border is also congested with thousands of people waiting to cross. It comes as UN personnel, diplomats and others have already left Sudan. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. The Biden administration is unveiling plans to discourage migrants from illegally crossing the southern U.S. border. Pandemic rules have allowed U.S. border officials to expel migrants more easily, but the rules expire next week. NPR's Joel Rose says the U.S. is creating a new pathway for migrants to find out if they can come to the U.S. The U.S. is going to stand up new migrant processing centers in Latin America, starting in Guatemala and Colombia. And these are places where migrants can learn if they qualify for legal pathways to the U.S. We also learned more yesterday about the enforcement end of all this. The administration says it's going to use what's called expedited removal under existing U.S. immigration law to quickly deport migrants who do not have valid asylum claims. NPR's Joel Rose reporting. This is NPR.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A judge is weighing whether the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking top-secret government documents should remain jailed. WBUR's Allie Darmanning was in court in Worcester as prosecutors argued that Jack Teixeira should stay in custody pending trial. Prosecutors say Teixeira is a national security risk, that a foreign government could help him flee in exchange for his top-secret knowledge about the war in Ukraine. Defense attorneys argue Teixeira didn't flee when his name was linked to the leaks before he was arrested, and he doesn't plan to do so now. They want him released to his father's custody. The judge didn't immediately rule on detention. Teixeira faces up to 25 years in prison if convicted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. The president of South Korea will be in Massachusetts today as part of his visit to the U.S. President Yoon Suk-yul and members of his delegation will meet with Governor Moore Healy for lunch at the State House. He's also slated to visit MIT and speak at Harvard's Kennedy School this evening. President Joe Biden hosted President Yoon at a White House state dinner earlier this week. The mayor of Medford is running for re-election. Brianna Lundgren-Kern announced her bid yesterday. She's held the job since 2020 and is a lifelong resident of Medford. During her tenure, the city has advanced plans to revitalize Medford Square and finalized a housing production plan. A wall of dog tags honoring those killed in action during the War on Terror goes on display today in Lemonster. James Howard is president of Veterans and Athletes United, the group that developed the tribute. He says the display consists of more than 7,000 military identification tags representing Americans killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's 28 feet wide by 6 feet tall. It's an American flag, you know, in, in the shape of a... Uh, what it looks like when it's draped on a fallen service member's casket. So it just, you know, really, we hope, pays tribute to them and ensures that they're never forgotten. The flag will be at Johnny Rowe Veterans Memorial Park through the weekend. The park is named after Jonathan Roberg, who also gave his life in the War on Terror. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. The Celtics are moving on to the second round of the NBA playoffs. They defeated the Atlanta Hawks last night in Game 6. Final score was 128-120. to The Seas face the Philadelphia 76ers Monday at the Garden. The Bruins are looking to win their playoff match tonight. They face the Florida Panthers on the road in Game 6. And the Red Sox are back in Fenway tonight. They host the Cleveland Guardians for the first game of their home home series. Mostly sunny today and breezy with a high near 60 degrees. Tonight, some clouds move in and temperatures drop into the mid-40s. Tomorrow, cloudy with highs in the low 50s. There's a chance of rain later in the day. Sunday, cloudy, breezy, and a chance of rain in the afternoon. High temperatures will be in the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We've got some new numbers about the economy this week. Growth is slowing, some, but consumer spending was still healthy in the first quarter. But inflation is still high, and you remember all the drama with some banks earlier this year. That's why some economists are still predicting that a recession that they've been talking about for some time could still come in the second half of the year. Claudia Assam is an economist. During her time at the Federal Reserve, she developed a method of predicting economic downturn turns. It's the SOM rule. So we called her to tell us what all these different indicators are telling her. And she's going to tell us. Claudia Sam, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. So I'm not going to ask you what goes into the SOM rule. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some want to know, but, but I'm just going to ask you what the SOM rule is telling you right now. Are we headed for a recession? And if so, when? In fact, the SOM rule is really simple. By design, it's about the unemployment rate, Mm. changes in unemployment rate. We have seen unemployment hover at a 50-year low for almost a year. The SOM rule tells us we are not in a recession. And frankly, we haven't seen the unemployment rate going up. Now, we haven't seen it yet, right? It's not a guarantee that we won't be in a recession later in the year, but we're not there right now. Well, that's encouraging. What um, what might push the country over into a recession? Bad events, things that come out of nowhere and surprise us, those are often what brings us into a recession, whether it's a mortgage market falling apart in the Great Recession or the dot-com bubble bursting in 2001. Usually it's something really bad that pushes us over the edge of the cliff, and then it's kind of a free fall Mm-mm. until we get things back on track. There are certainly some events we're facing, and particularly the debt ceiling and those debates right now that would just unsteady things, right? It could push us over the cliff. We're not in the strongest place possible. So that's that's a real risk, and we should do everything we can to keep those events from happening. Totally, totally understand your point about the, the debt ceiling issue. But, but you know, just something that I think people have been following, the Fed has raised interest rates several times since last year. Mm-hmm. That's an obviously an effort to tame inflation. Uh, but now we're seeing big layoffs in tech and other industries. How do you how do you interpret those e- events? Are we at a tipping point Are inflation? Are those layoffs? Is there something that we're seeing in those layoffs that that do speak to the unemployment rate? Clearly, every job loss is a hardship on the individuals who go through that. And there are industries, tech is definitely one of them, that has seen a lot of layoffs recently. And yet, the way to think about a lot of the layoffs we're seeing right now is a rebalancing. The tech industries really boomed when COVID shut everything down. It's, you know, we would like to forget about the pandemic. We'd like to think it's behind us. It was extremely disruptive to our lives and to the economy. And it's taken a long time to work things out. And what's happening in the tech sector, at least a large part of it, is just that rebalancing. Because again, if we look at the job market as a whole, it's really good. And, and we need to celebrate and particularly protect that progress we've made. Just as briefly as you can before we let you go, summer vacation season is nearly here. We're seeing rising costs across the board. And I'm just wondering if fears of a recession will affect travel plans and will that and could that have an effect on the economy? Well, if we rewind to this time last year, GDP fell. Right. So in the first half of last year, we had a lot of discussion. Are we in a recession? 
people went on vacation last summer, right? So prices are high, inflation is too high. The level of prices has risen quite a bit. I would fully expect people, I know I will, uh, cut back or try and find some cheaper options for travel this summer. But up to this point, the American consumer has kept coming back. And, and that's a lot like compensation, what, wages and salaries overall, they've been growing faster than inflation. There are people who have money in the bank that never have had money in the bank. Now, the more the okay. Fed does, the more things grind along, that'll be less the case. Okay. And I also would say the recreation, the okay. hotel, the okay. a lot of what we think of as leisure, that's only about 5% of okay. the U.S. or of consumer spending. All right. We're going to have. So it hits us. Okay. And We're yet, it's not the big picture. We're going to have to leave it there for now. Claudia Sam is a former Fed economist and founder of Sam Consulting. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Now let's ask who has more leverage in a fight over raising the federal debt limit. It's a power struggle between House Republicans on one side and the Democratic-controlled Senate and President Biden on the other. Democrats want the U.S. to pay its existing bills and avoid default, which requires extending federal borrowing authority. Republicans say they would like that too, but they refuse to do it unless Democrats give in to their agenda. Let's talk this over with Julian Zelizer, who is a Princeton University political history professor. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Okay, so McCarthy essentially made an opening bid by getting 218 votes, getting a bill through the House so that Republicans were unified, or, or nearly all of them were unified on a specific position. How much leverage does he have now? Well, he has leverage. Uh, he's now put forth a pretty big package of spending cuts, and that becomes the focus of the debate. They're specific spending cuts. And so now Biden has this in front of him, and it's more than an amorphous discussion. Um, and look, the House Republicans are driving McCarthy. I don't think he's going to budge much. Uh, so he's going to move forward aggressively against the administration. I'm interested in what you just, the way you just phrased that. House Republicans are driving McCarthy. It sounds like you think McCarthy would be flexible if his political situation would allow that, but his political situation does not, as he sees it. I think that's right. That's been clear from day one, that the caucus controls him rather than him leading the caucus. And uh, they have made it crystal clear that this debt ceiling fight is serious and that they're willing to go through with the ultimate threat of not raising the debt ceiling. And so McCarthy doesn't have much wiggle room not to listen to them at this point. Well, let's look at this from the other side, though. Democrats in the Senate and President Biden have argued this is essentially a hostage situation, that they, in a negotiation of any kind, should not be giving things to Republicans for doing their job, doing the thing that they need to do anyway, figuring out a way to finance past committed spending. How much leverage do they have? Well, I think their arguments are correct. This shouldn't be something that is subject to partisan politics. It shouldn't be used as leverage for spending cuts. The problem is, if Republicans are willing to go through with this, that means there's a potential for a default unless the president takes extraordinary measures, like using the 14th Amendment to pay for the government's bills. Uh, if he's not willing to do that, he doesn't have as much leverage, I think, as some Democrats hope. Uh, and he might have to concede to some of these spending cuts to get the bill through. 
Uh, President Obama faced this problem a couple of times. The first time he tried to negotiate with the then House Speaker John Boehner, and I guess it worked out in the end, but it was a near calamity. It was a total disaster, and it turned out that Boehner himself didn't have full control of his caucus. Is there any reason for Democrats to ever do that again? <laughs> and uh, let's remember, President Obama made concessions on spending cuts in the end. And so uh, I think we might see a replay of that. Uh, I don't know how far Biden is willing to go. This caucus is even more radicalized than the caucus in 2011. So I think the uh, situation is even more fraught than it was in 2011. Although Obama tried a different choice a year or two later, essentially said, I'm not negotiating over this at all. If you want to drive the country off the cliff, that's your business because it's your job to prevent that. Do your job. Could Biden just keep on with that approach, which is how he's done it so far? He could. Uh, he could get involved in one of these face-offs and hope that the Republicans back down, or more importantly, uh, hope that somehow Senator McConnell comes to the rescue, that somehow within the Republican Party, that the Senate starts to apply pressure on the House somehow through carrots and sticks to back down. Uh, but at this point, there's no sign that McConnell is going to do that. So if Biden wants to take that step, uh, he can, but the risks are very high. Again, he can also think of ways around this. Uh, but the problem is this shouldn't be something that becomes uh, at the center of these partisan battles from the Republican mm -hmm. Party. And that's really uh, what the crisis is at this point. Julian Zelizer of Princeton, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Russian missile strikes on two Ukrainian cities have killed at least 15 people. That's according to Ukrainian authorities. It's the first large-scale attack in Ukraine in about two months. The missiles hit high-rise apartment buildings and a warehouse. Ukraine says it will investigate the attacks as war crimes. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. Most of the dead are in the city of Uman, south of Kyiv. A Russian missile hit a nine-story apartment building while most people were sleeping. A video posted to Telegram by local residents showed flashes in the night and the sound of explosions. Ukraine's interior minister, Ihor Klemenko, spoke to a TV station while standing in front of a damaged apartment building still smoldering from the missile attack. The connection was bad as he spoke. He said that a cruise missile struck the building early this morning, destroying more than half of the apartments and burying residents in rubble. He said a child was among the dead. Uman is far from the front line and has rarely been the target of Russian attacks. Security services have opened a criminal investigation. Forensic specialists are coming from Kyiv to help document this war crime as soon as possible. Local officials said Russian forces also struck a nearby warehouse. The Russian military also hit a residential area in the central city of Dnipro, killing a 31-year-old woman and a 2-year-old child. The capital, Kyiv, was also targeted in today's attacks, but Ukrainian officials say air defenses shot down those missiles and drones and none did any damage. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, we look at the gap in medical billing protections for people with rare specialized conditions who need emergency care. It's 719. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic talked about hiring actor Daniel Radcliffe to play him in a movie about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, uh, I I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. This week, we go to Nashville to ask country music legend Brad Paisley what child actor he hopes will grow up to play him. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny with a high near 60 today. Overcast tonight as temperatures fall into the upper 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high in the low 50s. There's a good chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday, cloudy with highs in the upper 50s with rain likely in the afternoon. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 720. Get a summary of the latest news from WBUR in your in, in your inbox every morning with the WBUR Today newsletter. It's a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. So Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at Dynamedics.com. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep with the April Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner KFF Health News, and she periodically comes by with an outrageous medical bill or otherwise to talk about. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. This one's a doozy. Where does this doozy take us? (laughs) We're headed to Florida to meet Sarah Walsh. She and her husband had tried for eight years to have a kid. So when they learned there were twins on the way, they were hopeful and excited. Unfortunately, about six months into the pregnancy, Sarah discovered she had a rare complication that was potentially fatal. Oh, meaning the pregnancy was at risk. Yes, uh, three doctors said she urgently needed surgery to save the twins. Well, let's hear this story from the beginning. Here's reporter Stephanie O'Neill. There was little about Sarah Walsh's pregnancy that was typical, starting with her first ultrasound. Her obstetrician pointed out a fetus and something else not quite identifiable. So I asked her immediately, is there a chance that could be a second baby like a twin? Because my husband's grandmother had told us about a decade earlier, we'd have twin girls one day. Turns out she was pregnant with twins, in fact, identical twin girls. But then at 24 weeks, a maternal fetal specialist diagnosed her with a rare and serious complication. It's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which happens when blood is shared unevenly through the same placenta. My specialist had prepared me that it was a slim possibility from very early on. And I had started feeling so poorly two, three days leading up to my appointment 
that I knew something was wrong. Things were so serious that the specialist recommended she undergo immediate in utero surgery. Going without, he said, could be fatal for the twins and for Sarah. But the doctor who developed the gold standard treatment for it could do the surgery the next day. My OB, I think, trying to calm me down because I was already in tears, was like, look, it's deadly without treatment, but we're sending you to a world-class specialist. You're going to see him tomorrow, and we're going to put faith that everything's going to be okay. But the surgeon was about four hours away in Miami. So Sarah and her husband catapulted themselves into logistics mode. Call and text my boss, call and text your boss, call my parents, call his parents. As they packed their suitcases, the phone rang. It was the surgeon's billing office with shocking news. Before her appointment the next morning, Sarah needed to pay in full for the consultation, the surgery, and the post-operative care. About $15,000 upfront, money she and her husband did not have. My first question was, don't you take insurance? The biller for the surgeon's office told us that while the practice does accept Medicaid, it does not contract with private insurance. Upfront payment is their normal practice, and she said the office is transparent about their billing practices, disclosing them to patients at the outset. The biller also said if someone can't pay, the office will send them back to the physician who referred them to find another option. In Sarah's case, there was no time to do that, so she asked for a payment plan. I was told, no, we don't offer payment plans. So I went, you know, how is the average person expected to pay you? They referred me to a medical credit card company. The interest rate, she says, was outrageous. And I was in tears at that point. In a statement, the surgeon said with patients from all over the world, it would be impractical to join all health plans. If any patient is unable to pay, they refer them, as they did Sarah, to medical credit card companies, or they offer an alternative payment plan on a case-by-case basis. Ultimately, Sarah's mother stepped in and helped her pay for the surgery. She and her mom used credit cards they already had. And Sarah says she also called her insurer, who advised her to apply for a waiver that could allow the company to reclassify her care as in-network, but there was no guarantee. And since then, Sarah has spent more than a year trying to get reimbursed. Her insurer declined to comment on her case. After her twins were born, Sarah learned that another provider could have performed the procedure, but she didn't know that at the time, and she didn't have time to shop around. Today, Sarah Walsh's twin girls are rambunctious and healthy 18-month-old toddlers. Sarah says she and her doctors are confident the surgery saved her daughter's lives. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill. We are back with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. And let's just remember, Sarah had hours to come up with thousands of dollars. Aren't there, though, laws that would have required doctors to treat her whether she could pay or not in an emergency? Well, Sarah's case falls into a gray area between emergency and elective care. It really shows a gap in consumer protections for people who have rare specialized conditions, few treatment options, and little time for comparison shopping. So federal billing protections are still lacking in many situations. Was it then legal for the surgeon to say, I won't do anything unless you pay up front? It's not illegal for a doctor to charge up front for care, even when lives are on the line. Uh, But for Sarah, with her doctor saying she could lose the pregnancy, she felt like her only option was to pay up and pay up fast. So, yes, it was technically elective, but the choice was likely losing her babies and potentially her life. So what kind of choice is that, really? Could Sarah in that situation have negotiated a lower price? 
Well, you know, when there's elective surgery, yes, you can negotiate often a lower price. And um, there is a bit of flexibility. But, you know, this was an emergency as as Sarah saw it and as I would see it. So in those kind of cases, there's little incentive providers and insurers to negotiate for fair payment and no time. Of course, what she ultimately did was put it on a credit card. Is that common? Uh, yes, that's very, very common. It's a trend that uh, NPR and KFF Health News have noted in our joint reporting on medical debt this year in America. Major medical expenses often end up on people's Visa or MasterCard. And statistically speaking, they're often not counted in the national tallies of medical debt. But of course, it's part of the overall burden of financial medical debt that people deal with. And when you account for all credit cards and other kinds of loans people use to pay for care, medical debt is much higher than many people realize. Okay, Dr. Rosenthal, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And if you have a confusing medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us all about it. We are especially looking to hear from people who live in the South and Southwest of this country. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, mass shootings around the country make big headlines, but more than half of gun-related deaths in the U.S. are suicides. We'll look at the growing intersection of gun rights and suicide prevention. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBOR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBOR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting the Outlaw Music Festival with Willie Nelson, Bob Weir, and Wolf Brothers featuring the Wolf Pack and more, September 16th at the Xfinity Center. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There's been no decision from a judge in Massachusetts on whether Jack Teixeira will remain behind bars as he awaits trial. The 21-year-old IT specialist with the state's Air National Guard is accused of leaking dozens of classified Pentagon documents online. In court filings, prosecutors say Teixeira kept an arsenal of weapons. They want him to remain in custody. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he's pleased to see the warring sides in Sudan have extended their 72-hour ceasefire. Michael Koloki has more. The Sudanese army and the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, have agreed to extend the ceasefire for another 72 hours. This follows intense diplomatic efforts by the UN, US, UK and the regional East African bloc IGAD. Despite the agreement, there are continuing reports of gunfire and explosions in the capital Khartoum. The Sudanese army says it has agreed to send representatives to South Sudan, which has offered to host talks to include the RSF. Over the past week, countries have begun evacuating citizens from the country, while thousands of Sudanese have also fled from the fighting. Meanwhile, aid agencies have warned of a growing humanitarian crisis. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. U.S. Special Forces evacuated nearly 100 Americans from the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum six days ago. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local workers' rights organizations today will honor those who died in Massachusetts while on the job last year. New reporting by those organizations shows 51 people died in the state of work-related incidents and illnesses in 2022. WBUR's Ninja M. reports. Most of those workplace deaths were due to injuries, such as from vehicle crashes or falls. There were also several deaths from work-related illnesses. Al Vega is with the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health. He says many of these deaths are preventable. We have to be in the mindset that every worker should be protected on the job. They should be able to go to their job and return in that same condition every day, and that sadly is not the case. The report calls for stronger policies to protect workers and more enforcement measures to hold employers accountable for worker safety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office is introducing a new program to keep young people out of the justice system. The Boston Globe reports the program is for people between the ages of 18 and 25. Participating could lead to reduced sentences or even case dismissal. The program will also offer access to housing and substance abuse counseling. A music and arts festival in Lowell this weekend will bring artists from around the country to the area. Chris Porter founded the festival. He says it's named after the first book from Lowell native Jack Kerouac, the town and the city. And the city. While this isn't meant to be a, a Kerouac-themed event per se, it's meant to celebrate the spirit of Jack as far as exploration, discovery, love of life, those, those things that he wrote about. Porter says events will be set up throughout downtown so festival goers can experience a variety of performances. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors. Available at muzzinaudio.com. The Celtics are one step further in their chase for a championship. The team defeated the Atlanta Hawks last night to move on to the second round of the NBA playoffs. Final score was 128-120. to They returned to the Garden Monday to face off against the Philadelphia 76ers. The Bruins will skate with the Panthers tonight in Florida. The teams are facing off for Game 6 in their playoff run. And the Red Sox are back home for a game tonight against the Cleveland Guardians. In your forecast, near 60 today under mostly sunny skies. Some clouds move in tonight and it'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy, low 50s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. The clouds stick around on Sunday and will likely give way to rain in the afternoon. It'll be back near 60. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. You know, this week started with a divorce. 
At Fox News, the network fired its biggest star, Tucker Carlson. And the rest of the week has not gone any better. Viewers have deserted Fox, at least for now, and reporters have posted stories that the discovery of offensive private messages Carlson sent about colleagues may have been what pushed Fox to settle a major lawsuit. NPR's David Fulkenflick joins us now. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So what's it been like over there? I know you have many sources. What's it like over there now that Tucker Carlson is out? Well, you don't even have to talk to sources to notice the biggest fallout. You've seen ratings basically fall off a cliff this week for those who have been substituting for him. It was down, you know, significant chunk. It's down almost 50 percent in the days since his departure. And you've seen the rise concomitantly of this much smaller right wing rival Newsmax. They are playing up the idea that Fox has fired Tucker Carlson because it's gone lib. It's gone woke. It's gone Democrat. And in some ways, you've seen, you know, former Fox host Eric Bowling on Newsmax has seen his ratings go up almost fivefold. All of this is, in a way, weirdly ironic because that dynamic is what led to the panic at Fox News after the 2020 elections that led to uh, Fox being sued for defamation. That's true. And they were saying things like, we've got to respect the audience, meaning that we have to listen to people who believe false claims of election fraud. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to figure out how this story has evolved over the last several days. We knew at the beginning that Fox had lost this huge defamation suit. Then we Mm -hmm. knew that Carlson was ousted. It wasn't exactly clear what the connection was between the two or why. So what have you learned in the days since? Sure. Well, I would say litigation focuses the mind. And first thing to remember is that Tucker Carlson has been and Fox have been sued for creating a, a sexist, misogynist and bigoted workplace. In the defamation lawsuit that was settled last week for three quarters of a billion bucks, their messages emerged from Carlson to colleagues uh, showing contempt for other colleagues and showing a sexist and bigoted outlook, according to uh, three people I spoke with with some knowledge of his departure from Fox. In addition, he had lost standing at the network. He had not only been contemptuous of colleagues, but lost advertisers. So huge ratings, but losing revenue because of the kinds of conspiracy theories he was wrapping his show with. And he, you know, Fox had publicly stood by him by things including uh, a special he did called Patriot Purge, standing up for people who had been part of the bloody siege of Congress on January 6th. But at a certain point, it all was too much. Well, what does that tell you about the way that Fox operates? Well, I think it tells you both about how Fox operates and how their controlling owners, the Murdochs, operate. They're with you until they're not. And that's true from the outset. You know, if you think of Glenn Beck, a figure who kind of got bigger than the network in his own mind, they ultimately dumped him and did fine. The ratings got better. Bill O'Reilly, a star from the outset, primetime at 8 o'clock, this same slot. You know, he was forced out in 2017 because of sexual harassment accusations that I must say he denies. Nonetheless, Fox paid a lot of money. He paid a lot of money to get out of it. They did great. They put in Tucker Carlson even better ratings. So, you know, their belief is they'll regroup but come out fine, if not stronger. What's Carlson do next? Well, we've seen this uh, recent video that he posted a day or two ago in which he said only truth tellers survived and said it's really a one-party state in America. The media won't post dissenting views. Of course, we live in one of the most divisive times you could imagine. I think Carlson's signaling he intends to be on his own platform, and we'll be hearing more from him soon. David, thanks so much. You bet. That's NPR's David Falkenflick. Over the last few weeks, we've seen some terrible stories of mass shootings, carjackings, people being shot for showing up at the wrong house or car. But there's another aspect of gun violence that rarely makes the headlines, and it's actually a majority of the deaths. We're talking about suicide, and we need to because more than half of gun-related deaths in the U.S. are suicides. People don't want to accept that this is happening all the time. That's James Russell. 
His father took his own life with a gun when James was 15. He survived for two days and actually spoke to James one last time. And I remember him saying to Thanos, he said, you don't understand? And then after a pause, he said it was an accident. And the research says that's true. Most people who attempt suicide only contemplate it for about an hour. Catherine Barber, a senior researcher at the Harvard Injury Research Center, spoke to me about how people can protect their families. Every U.S. study that I'm aware of that has examined the relationship has found that access to firearms is a risk factor for suicide. Why is that? I know it sounds crazy, right? Because it sounds like you're saying that having a gun around makes you more likely to be suicidal. And that's just absolutely not the case. Gun owners aren't more likely to be suicidal. But should they become suicidal, they are more likely to die because precisely what people value about guns makes them so dangerous in a suicide attempt. Is there some kind of routine conversations you would like to see people have about this? Given that there are more guns in the United States than there are people, or is this just the kind of thing that really needs to be very local and very specific to wherever you happen to be? Because we're so polarized in, in our country, we really need this message to be coming from gun owners, not some scolding government body or somebody who doesn't like guns where you think, oh, I can't trust them. Firearm instructors, gun shop owners, gun rights advocates, sportsmen clubs, all of these types of groups can be really important lifesavers by taking that same safety approach that they take to reducing unintentional firearm deaths so that instead of 10 commandments of firearm safety, there's now an 11th, which is to be aware of suicide risk and friends and family and help keep guns from them until, until they've recovered. But I have to say, look, only seven states and the District of Columbia require individuals to go through safety training prior to purchasing guns. And the trend seems to be that states not even requiring permits to carry guns. So I guess what I'm just trying to figure out is how to promote gun safety when the intervention points seem to be getting less and less. What I've seen really work is when, instead of setting it up as a fight, as a, oh, we should have this or that, why don't you support this or that? Like we did this in, in Utah, where we had mental health people and firearm advocates and public safety people all coming together to say, let's look at the data. And when the gun rights folks looked at the data, then they were very much on board with how do we get this education to people. And the legislature put a million dollars into a public safety messaging campaign that was really promoting gun owners holding onto one another's guns when, when in distress, that was really promoting routine locked storage. Now at the same time, they did stop requiring a permit. But when they made that move, then they said, okay, we need to put more resources into other ways to get this education to, to gun owners. And, and they followed through. Catherine Barber is a senior researcher at the Harvard School of Public Health's Injury Research Center. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, or if you're in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, we discuss why the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking government documents was able to buy guns despite being denied a firearms license twice. In your forecast, mostly sunny, breezy, and upper 50s today. It grows cloudy tonight and falls to the upper 40s. The clouds will hang around all weekend. Overcast and low 50s on Saturday with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Still overcast and upper 50s on Sunday with showers likely afternoon. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. The start of the cruise season in Massachusetts kicks off today. Transportation officials say they expect this year to be the busiest season to date. Cruising brings over $135 million to the regional economy. The Boston Foundation has a new head of its fund that supports nonprofits helping the LGBTQ community. M. Scott King is the new leader of the nonprofit's Equality Fund. He comes to the Boston Foundation from a nonprofit that trains young people in the culinary world. The fund has been active since 2012, but hasn't had a director until now. Celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay is hiring more than 100 people for his new Boston restaurant. Ramsay Burger Boston is slated to open this summer at the Canopy Hotel on the Greenway. The Boston Business Journal reports the restaurant is hiring for a variety of positions, including line cooks, servers, hosts, and bartenders. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin off. Available to stream at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newly released court documents show the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman charged with leaking top-secret government information had an arsenal of weapons at his home, including handguns and rifles. That's despite the fact that Jack Teixeira applied twice for a weapons permit when he was 18 and was denied by Dighton police for making threats in high school. He then appealed to the department, who granted him a permit. Those appeals typically go to district courts or the firearm license. Licensing Review Board. Attorney Jason Gaida is a former counsel to that board and joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by asking you to lay out how the process for appealing a denied application is supposed to work in Massachusetts and how the Dighton PD was able to grant a license after denying him. And I should say that we put in multiple calls to Dighton police and they said no one was available for comment. Typically, uh, when a denial is issued by a police department for a FID or a license to carry, uh, the applicant has a 90-day window to seek judicial review in the district court. Um, judicial review is an opportunity to convince a judge that the police chief has acted 
arbitrarily and capriciously. It is a difficult process. The judges are required to defer to the police chief's discretions in licensing. And um, police chiefs have a great deal of discretion, a great deal of power over determining who gets a license and who doesn't here in Massachusetts. Is there a reason for that? The legislature, I, I think, believes that or when the statute was passed, that police chiefs know their citizens, know their residents and their community, and they're more likely to know if an individual has issues or problems that don't necessarily show up on a criminal record background check. In Teixeira's appeal letter, he argues that enlisting in the Air Force and National Guard shows that he's grown as a person. How would you have responded to that when you were on the appeal board? Quite frankly, it's understandable uh, how uh, Mr. Teixeira is laying out uh, his reasoning. I think there is certainly uh, an argument and case law to support it that a, a juvenile and a juvenile mind doesn't appreciate uh, consequences as an adult does. And as uh, Tashir is laying out, arguing that he has grown and, you know, matured and, you know, taking on responsibility, it's certainly not out of the norm for a police chief to consider those factors in an attempt, quite frankly, to make a reasonable decision about someone's suitability or fitness to possess the firearm. Does this to share a case show that Massachusetts's license appeal process needs to be stricter? I don't believe so. The, the law is written so that police chiefs can use their reasonable discretion in these matters. And if you really look at the facts and you look at the conduct, the limited conduct that the police chief was considering, you're seeing a juvenile making inappropriate, foolish comments, maybe at you know, the lunch table. And to use those later on when someone has become an adult, when someone has you know joined the armed forces, preventing that person from exercising what is a constitutional right because of comments made at 16 would be somewhat difficult to defend in a court proceeding. So it's it's understandable why the chief made the decision that they did. Now, certainly when new information comes to light, the chief has the option and opportunity to take action on that license at that time. Attorney Jason Gaida is a former member of the Firearm Licensing Review Board. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Coming up in just a couple minutes, comedian Roy Wood Jr. talks about his preparations to host the iconic White House Correspondents' Dinner. And at 810, with pandemic restrictions set to end next month, the Biden administration is laying out plans to reduce the number of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's 750. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California, or in Michigan, or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. 
WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. At least 15 people are dead after a Russian missile hit an apartment building in Ukraine. The president of South Korea is in Massachusetts today to learn about the state's biotech industry. And the Commerce Department will provide updated data today on inflation and spending in the U.S. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Enjoy the dry weather on this Friday before what looks like a wet weekend arrives. We'll have clear skies and temperatures near 60 today. The clouds move in tonight as it falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, overcast and low 50s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday, near 60 and cloudy with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 752. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Faldil. Comedy Central's Roy Wood Jr. headlines the White House Correspondents' Dinner tomorrow night, where the political elite and the journalists who cover them gather in one room. I guess there is some roast aspect of it, but I'm not a complete straight-up insult comic. So I do think it's a very, very unique skill set to try and tell the line of, all right, let me make a crack, but how do you make it bipartisan? Wood told me, quote, you want to unify Congress? Start telling jokes about them and they'll all get upset. Now, Wood comes in with a background in journalism and political satire. He says at the dinner, the toughest thing is going to be figuring out what to leave out with all that's in the headlines. From a racist county commissioner and a sheriff recorded talking about lynching black residents in Oklahoma, to Trump indictments, to Clarence Thomas, and more. White House Correspondents Association president and NPR correspondent Tamara Keith invited Wood to go before the notoriously tough crowd. And I caught up with them both in the midst of their preparations. You could almost call it a state of the constituency address. You know, when else does a regular citizen have an opportunity to get all of these people in one room and talk to them without them also asking me for $8 (laughs) (laughs) to help get in the fight? (laughs) Like, Can you put a different phrase on your emails, please? Stop saying we're in a fight. Just that verbiage sets people up for division. We got to fight these people. No. Say, hey, man, help me trick these dummies so we can get some laws passed. You say the state of the constituency. And, Tam, I'd love to bring you in here because it is kind of a weird event because you've got the political elite and then the people who are supposed to keep them accountable in the same room, joking together. If you could talk about the history of this event and how it came to be. It is a weird event. Let's just be honest about that. It is a room with 2,600 people in it with very glamorous celebrities who dress like this all the time, maybe. I don't know. And reporters who have no idea how to dress up for this kind of an event. Um, (laughs) And then politicians and the Secretary of State and all of these people in the room together. And people watching at home on TV could think that this is a meeting of the cabal that controls the world. But it isn't. 
to be clear. And the reality is it's actually a good sourcing opportunity. It's actually an opportunity for people to see each other as people rather than as enemies. What was it like, Roy, to be asked to do this event? It's terrifically horrific. <laughs> like, regardless, it's an opportunity to be real live YouTube comments from the world to the room full of people who make all of the decisions. I'd love to talk about your father here. Your father was a pioneering Black radio journalist, co-founder of the National Black Network. How has your dad's career and legacy inspired your own, and, and how much will he be influencing what you bring to the table tomorrow? Um, my father covering events, like, you know, going as far back as, like, you know, riots in South Africa and Vietnam for black soldiers and civil rights movement and stuff like that. Like, my father was much angrier than me, much more intense. I think we're aiming at the same targets of equality and calling things out, but I think the weapons we use are probably would be different. My father was charismatic, but I don't think he was hilarious <laughs> at, <laughs> at any point in his life. It's weird because I got into journalism because I wanted to be like Stuart Scott. I just wanted to be funny and talk about sports. Then as I got <laughs> older and matured, you just started realizing certain truths about the world. Then you have a child and then you're like, we got to stop these people, they're crazy. You access a different joke plane at some point. Yeah. I've always actually been kind of jealous of like political satire and the type of journalism you do because you get to point at the things that are happening and laugh at it, which we don't get to do, which is kind of fun about the dinner. Yeah, the dinner is fun. But then the problem is that when I go back to the Daily Show for the next 51 weeks is that we're still pointing at those things. And then... Mm -hmm. You're trying to make them funny, but it's harder and harder every time. When you look up and you see one of the officers that killed Breonna Taylor this week started a new yeah. job as a deputy at an adjoining county in Kentucky. And now I'm in the room with all of the people who filibustered the police reform bill that could have stopped that from happening. But hey, jokes. In that space, I have to make a joke. Okay, cool. But then I have to turn around and figure out a way the next 51 weeks to really get into the depth of the story. And I can't because I have to be funny. When you walk away tomorrow, what will be success to you having headlined this event? What, I mean, and is there anybody that you want to be in the audience for what you have to say? I do not care who's there. Most of the people who need to hear what I have to say aren't going to be there anyway because they didn't want truth spoken to them. Like who? I would imagine Trump's not going to be there. I would imagine DeSantis isn't going to be there. I would imagine Ted Cruz isn't going to be there. I kind of hope Tim Scott is there. Tim Scott's there. There's a quick back and forth about bipartisanship. I know he and Cory Booker didn't see eye to eye on a police reform bill. And then there was also the, the one that Tim Scott proposed, which Democrats filibustered. But then there was also a Democratic version, the George Floyd policing act. Like, well, pass mine. No, pass mine. Pass my police reform bill. No, pass my police reform bill. The fact that Republicans and Democrats were able to filibuster and not pass a police reform bill is progress. Four years ago, we didn't have a police reform bill. Definitely not one from Republicans. So who knows? 
maybe in 40 years, we'll have police reform. <laughs> when you think about what you're going in to do and walking away on Saturday, what will success be for you? Just the, the people laugh. The rest of it I can't control. You're not going to solve the debt ceiling standoff no, I, tomorrow? I can't. It'd be great if <laughs> I got black people reparations at the end. Like, in, in, like if Joe Biden came back up to the podium and was like, you know what, that was hilarious. All right, black people, reparations. <laughs> Comedian Roy Wood Jr., who will be headlining the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend. And Tamara Keith, she's also the president of the White House Correspondents Association. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Falden. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, WestonNurseries.com. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former Vice President Mike Pence has reportedly testified before the federal grand jury investigating former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It's Friday, April 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in a separate case yesterday, Trump's attorney asked a columnist accusing him of rape, why it took decades for her to come forward. And she said, I was afraid Donald Trump would retaliate, which is exactly what he did. He has two tables of lawyers here today. Also this hour, we hear from a former producer for Fox News' Tucker Carlson show who's suing the network. I was hopeful that maybe there was a kinder person behind the on-air persona, but unfortunately it's quite the reverse. And hundreds of people are still searching for the remains of their missing loved ones in Turkey, more than two and a half months after earthquakes there. Mostly sunny and near 60 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Federal prosecutors say the Air National Guardsman suspected of leaking classified government documents told friends online that he wanted to kill a, quote, ton of people. From member station WBUR in Boston, Ali Germanning reports the details about Jack Teixeira's online conversations have been disclosed in court documents. Teixeira had an extremely active presence on the social media platform Discord, sharing 40,000 messages in five months. Prosecutors say he spoke with friends about, quote, forcibly culling the weak-minded. He allegedly wondered about the best way to shoot people on the sidewalk from an SUV. Defense attorneys say there's no evidence he took any actions related to the chats. They want him released to the custody of his father. Prosecutors are seeking to keep Teixeira locked up as he awaits trial. The judge in the case is expected to make a decision soon. For NPR News, I'm Allie Jarmanning in Boston. The White House says it refuses to negotiate on the demands in a Republican-backed bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the measure that passed the House on Wednesday has hit a brick wall in the democratically controlled Senate. 
The White House says it's been very clear that raising the debt ceiling is non-negotiable. Republicans passed a measure that would lift the borrowing limit in exchange for cutting major parts of President Biden's signature climate change and social services law. The high-stakes standoff between the administration and House Republicans has been dragging on for months with no signs of a clear path forward. If the two sides fail to break the stalemate, the U.S. could default on its existing debt for the first time ever. NPR's Windsor Johnston prepared that report. The U.N. Security Council has unanimously approved a resolution condemning the Taliban's ban on Afghan women's freedom to work for the U.N. in Afghanistan. Linda Fasulo reports the council also called on the Taliban to end their severe restrictions on women and girls. The Security Council resolution characterizes the Taliban's decision in early April to ban women's employment with the UN as, quote, unprecedented in UN history. The measure also stresses the indispensable role of women in Afghan society and calls on the Taliban to end its severe restrictions on women and girls, including limits on educational, economic, and political opportunities. In December, Afghan women were required to stop working for non-UN aid agencies. Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Robert Wood said the Taliban's repression of women and girls is indefensible and not seen anywhere else in the world. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. Russia has fired a fresh barrage of missiles at Ukraine today. Ukrainian officials are reporting that at least 15 people have been killed. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former President Donald Trump is working to win over voters in New Hampshire. He took his re-election campaign to Manchester yesterday. As Todd Bookman reports, Tump, Trump touched on everything from the economy to his concerns about international trade. Trump's second visit to New Hampshire since announcing his candidacy comes just days after President Joe Biden announced his re-election bid. Inside a Manchester hotel ballroom, Trump called Biden past his prime and said voters will have a clear choice again in 2024. The choice in this election is now between strength and weakness, between success or failure, between safety or anarchy, between peace or conflict and prosperity or catastrophe. We are living in a catastrophe. Trump didn't directly address his legal troubles. He did take a few swipes, though, at potential Republican rivals, including Ron DeSantis and Governor Chris Sununu, who's been critical of Trump while floating his own presidential bid. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. More than 600 construction workers in Massachusetts and Rhode Island will spend part of today talking instead of building. It's part of an industry stand-down so employers and workers can discuss substance use disorder and mental health issues. Sean Neely is the president of the Iron Workers District Council of New England. He says the goal is to break down stigmas and save lives. We do a physically demanding job. We build the city of Boston. We build the surrounding communities. It's important that everybody has the right mental state of mind, that people go to work every day and come home safely, and then that we know that they're safe at home as well. The Building Trades Employers Association reports that construction workers represent 25 percent of fatal opioid overdoses among workers nationwide. Nantucket residents will vote next month on a proposal that could limit short-term rentals on the island. Opponents of the plan commissioned a study showing the change could take about 95 percent of the island's short-term rentals off the market. Nantucket residents rejected a similar measure two years ago. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include Prompt 
with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at MyPrompt.com. The Celtics defeated the Atlanta Hawks last night by eight points. The victory sends the Seas into the second round of the NBA playoffs. They're now looking ahead to Monday. That's when they'll face off against the Philadelphia 76ers at the Garden. The Bruins have another chance to close out their series and move on to the next playoff round tonight. They skate with the Florida Panthers on the road for Game 6. And the Red Sox are back in Boston tonight to host the Cleveland Guardians. In your forecast, mostly sunny today and breezy with a near 60 degrees. Tonight, some clouds move in and temperatures drop into the mid-40s. Tomorrow, cloudy with highs in the mid-50s. There's just a chance of rain in later in the day. Sunday, cloudy, breezy, and a chance of rain throughout the day. High temperatures will be in the low 50s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. At 8.07, thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The pandemic rule known as Title 42 expires next month. This rule always had an official purpose, a little different from its practical effect. The purpose was to protect the United States from COVID. Obviously, that didn't work out. But the effect was to make it easier for the U.S. to expel migrants. Since 2020, officials have used the policy to remove more than 2 million people who crossed the border. Now, as it goes away, President Biden's administration wants to prevent more people from arriving illegally. So the U.S. plans a mix of new rules. Which NPR's Joel Rose is covering. Joel, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What's the replacement policy or set of policies here? It's a combination of expanded legal pathways and tough new enforcement measures at the border including more deportations for migrants who cross the border illegally. The Biden administration is trying to send the message that the border is not open just because Title 42, as you say, is set to end next month. Which is, yeah, happening May 11th, if I'm not mistaken. So what is the administration saying they intend that mixture of policies to be? Well, one of the big announcements that we got yesterday is that the U.S. is going to stand up new migrant processing centers in Latin America, starting in Guatemala and Colombia. And these are places where migrants can learn if they qualify for legal pathways to the U.S., either as refugees or under some other expanding pathways that the administration is going to roll out. We also learned more yesterday about the enforcement end of all this. The administration says it's going to use what's called expedited removal under existing U.S. immigration law to quickly deport migrants who do not have valid asylum claims. And the administration says it is pushing ahead with a controversial rule that would make it harder to get asylum if you've crossed the border illegally after passing through Mexico or another country. Okay, so they're saying we will encourage you in certain ways to seek a legal pathway, but we're going to be tougher on you if you try to cross illegally. Why would that latter part be controversial? Well, immigrant advocates say the second part is similar to an asylum policy that the Trump administration proposed, although the Biden White House disputes that. In general, the reaction from immigrant advocates has been pretty mixed to this announcement. There was a lot of support for the idea of adding these new refugee processing centers, but there's also a lot of disappointment that the administration is moving forward with these restrictions on asylum. Here's Eleanor Acer of the group Human Rights First on a call yesterday with reporters. Refugee resettlement or other regular pathways should never be used to justify denials of access to asylum. Seeking asylum is a fundamental human right and legal under both U.S. and international law. And immigrant advocates have made it clear that they are going to try to block this asylum rule in court when it goes forward. 
Needless to say, an irony here that immigrant advocates would accuse the administration of being too harsh, too tough, kicking out too many people, since Republican critics of the administration constantly say the opposite. Yeah, and we heard more of that in reaction to this plan. I mean, Republicans and immigration hardliners were already critical of the administration's policies. They say that's encouraged the record number of migrants arriving at the border. Here's Mark Green, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, a Republican from Tennessee, speaking yesterday at a press conference. The more you incentivize people, the bigger the wave will be. And all the processing centers do is provide more incentive. Oh, the door's even more open. Okay, bottom line, will the administration be able to prevent that big wave, to use Green's phrase? I think in the short run, there's wide agreement, even from the administration, that we're going to see a jump in the number of migrants crossing the border. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people in the hemisphere have left their homes, fleeing from violence, poverty, and and political destabilization. Many of them are now in towns and cities along the U.S.-Mexico border, and they're growing increasingly desperate to seek asylum. NPR's Joel Rose, thanks so much. You bet. Tucker Carlson was a star on the Fox News Network until he was fired on Monday. Fox terminated the former host of Tucker Carlson tonight after he was implicated in multiple lawsuits targeting the network. Abby Grossberg, a former producer on Carlson's show, filed two of those suits. One accuses Carlson of creating a toxic work environment where misogyny and anti-Semitism were tolerated, even encouraged. Our co-host Leila Fadel spoke with Abby Grossberg about working on that show. I think the best place to start is a little bit from the end when I ultimately went and complained to one of my supervisors about the abuse and the bullying and the gaslighting and misogyny that I was putting up with at Tucker. And his response to me was, we're just following Tucker's tone. That's Tucker's tone. And I do really believe that it all trickles down from the top and what you see on air is who Tucker Carlson really is. When I joined the show, I was hopeful that maybe there was a kinder person behind the on-air persona, but unfortunately, it's quite the reverse what's being said in the office by his team and also his lieutenants who are carrying out his orders is very consistent with what ends up on the air and what the public sees. You mentioned accusations of misogyny and gaslighting. If you could be sort of specific of what that tone was and how this type of misogyny manifested itself. It was blatant. From the day I've walked in, a a popular example that I've discussed before is pictures of Nancy Pelosi all over the office. Just, that's a Speaker of the House, you could argue. At the time, she was the most powerful woman in America, and to belittle her and her physical appearance, I found to be disgusting. And I also thought that she looked terrific. Uh, Another example is debating, for example, when we had um, Tudor Dixon on the show and she was going up against Gretchen Whitmore, who was more, um, I don't want to use the language that they use, but who would you rather sleep with in the office? Who was hotter between the two? So there were blatant examples like that in the office. There were conversations that women who had tattoos or piercings or colored hair were disgusting. And that was a specific instance where I stood up and I said, wait a minute, you don't have to be attracted to these women or date these women, but you do have to respect them. And I'm extremely offended by that. When I ultimately did complain and I was told that Tucker set the pace of the show about approximately two and a half hours later, They retaliated against me and summoned me to HR for a meeting where they came up with bogus 
accusations about me that they wanted me to sign. And when I spoke back and I looked my abusers in the eye and told them everything that had been going on there and why the atmosphere was so difficult for me to endure with anti-Semitism and with bullying and with the misogyny, I told them that I had to go to the bathroom sometimes just to compose myself so that I wasn't going to cry. And literally five minutes later, my boss said to me, you just told us you go to the bathroom to cry because you can't do your job. So it was that kind of gaslighting where you started to question your own reality. And they did that a lot at Fox. And day in and day out, that's really difficult to take. So that's sort of my characterization. I mean, I think you've used the words a living hell to describe your time at the show. I have. Uh, it got so bad at one point that I came home from work. I was in tears and beside myself talking to my best friend on the phone who I've known for 20 years, somebody that would never describe me as an anxious person, a sad person, a depressed person. And he recommended that I call a crisis line. And I did, which is something that I never would have considered. I thought I had too much pride to do that. And it really shows me that bullying can tear anybody apart when it's done systematically and routinely. You know, I'm listening to you describe a really terrible environment, but I'm also thinking about what Tucker Carlson has said publicly about immigrants, about women. I mean, he said pregnant women make a mockery of the U.S. military. He called Ariana Huffington a pig. He said things like women enjoy being told to be quiet and kind of to do what they're told, that they're extremely primitive. So, Abby, I, I do have to ask, like, what you were expecting or what you were anticipating when you went to work on the show. I was expecting and anticipating a professional work environment. I hoped that it was an on-air persona. And my story is long. When I was with Maria Bartiromo for three and a half years prior to that, I was never given the promotion for the job that I was doing. So when the opportunity came up at Tucker, I was hopeful that it would be a promotion and that there would be professionalism in the office. And also knowing that he was primarily in Maine and Florida, that it wouldn't translate into the office culture. That was my hope. And I unfortunately was wrong. Now, this is what a Fox News spokesperson had to say in response to your suits. Quote, we will continue to vigorously defend Fox against Ms. Grossberg's unmerited legal claims, which are riddled with false allegations against Fox and our employees. What do you say to that? Sounds a lot like what they said about Dominion heading into that trial. That's my first thought. And Fox will do anything to protect themselves. They care about two things, money and ratings. And that comes from viewers. So even in cases in the past with, I know Gretchen Carlson received an apology, but there have been other cases that have been settled where they still said that they found no wrongdoing. And that's just sort of their MO, and I believe will continue to be until there's accountability from advertisers, from the cable providers, and also members of their board. Taking together your lawsuits, the Dominion lawsuit, what do you think they tell us about the Fox network? I think they tell us that, one, they don't care. They don't care about their audience, and they don't care about their employees, and they don't care about telling the truth, and they don't care about women. All they care about are ratings 
and revenue. It also shows that they believe that the viewing public is stupid. I think that's part of it, too. And they can continue to peddle lies without accountability and that their audience will continue to eat it up. And I think they've underestimated me and they are also underestimating their viewers. Abby Grossberg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We just want to tell you that we reached out to Fox to see if they had any additional comment on Layla's interview with Abby Grossberg. A spokesperson for the network told us that they engaged an independent outside counsel to investigate Grossberg's claims and that her allegations were made after a critical performance review. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for being with WBUR this morning. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, we remember Jerry Springer, who died yesterday at the age of 79. He's best known for hosting the popular 1990s confrontational talk show, The Jerry Springer Show. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Mostly sunny with a high near 60 today. Overcast tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high in the low 50s. There's a good chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday, cloudy with highs in the upper 50s with rain likely in the afternoon. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 820. Today on the Common Podcast, last year Boston police received more than 100 reports of drink spiking in the city. Host Daryl C. Murphy will discuss how to prevent drink spiking today on The Common, wherever you find your podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Carmen, a new reimagined cinematic experience starring Melissa Barrera and Paul Meskel, directed by Benjamin Mipier. Carmen is now playing only in theaters. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Jerry Springer has died. His TV show drew high ratings by showcasing low behavior. My guests today say that their life is a big mess. Please meet DeAndre. He says he's here to tell his wife that he's been getting a little more than sugar from his neighbor. From the 1990s onward, the Jerry Springer show became a huge cultural presence and the inspiration for Jerry Springer, the opera, on stage. 
Talk to the hand, talk to the hand, talk to the hand, because the face ain't listening. Now, in the opera, the character Jerry Springer is shot and takes a tour of hell. The real Jerry Springer died of natural causes at 79. And NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is here. Eric, good morning. Good morning. What made Springer so popular? I was going to call him Jerry. I feel like I'm on a first name basis. You, you really should. You absolutely should. <laughs> what made Jerry so popular? Well, fans will recall that the Jerry Springer show featured guests, usually average working class people, in these bizarre situations that would provoke that would provoke conflict and maybe even an onstage fistfight. Somebody might be sleeping with their wife's mom or leaving their family for a porn star or secretly sleeping with a neighbor. And Springer would ask these questions designed to bring out the controversy with the audience egging things on, chanting his name, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. You know, his show helped ignite this tabloid talk show movement of the 1990s that included Mari Povich, Sally Jesse Raphael, Montel Williams. These shows were successful because they were cheap, they were shocking, and they were popular with daytime viewers. And they were a counterpoint to these other hosts like Oprah Winfrey and Rosie O'Donnell who tried to be nicer and more inspirational. But unlike a lot of hosts, Springer admitted that his show was a circus. Like in this clip we, uh, from HuffPost Live. Let's check it out. Look, my show is stupid. Let's just, <laughs> it's stupid. But it's fun to do. I enjoy it. It has no redeeming social value. It's, a, it's, it's an hour of escapism. So how do you criticize a guy who's so self-deprecating he already admits that the show that he's hosting is stupid? How did he get into this stupid but lucrative line of work? Well, he took a, a really circuitous route. He was an attorney with a law degree from Northwestern University. He got elected to Cincinnati City Council in 1971, but he had to resign a few years later after admitting he wrote a check to a sex worker. Uh, he was reelected in 1975, served as mayor for a year, and eventually he became a popular local TV news anchor and commentator, and he started hosting his syndicated talk show in 1991 while he was anchoring. And at first it was a more conventional talk show on serious topics, but after a few years, he developed this sensational style of programming to get bigger ratings. What did you think of him when you met him? Well, he was a very charismatic and down-to-earth guy, way smarter than the TV show he starred in. I, I liked him. He had an easygoing attitude that audiences also loved, even though the show could be exploitive and damaging. Now, I met him when he brought a town hall to Florida to discuss the case of a white guy who was sentenced to jail for using threats and racial slurs to drive away his African-American neighbors. The show was elevating members of white supremacist groups, but Springer ins insisted it was good to start discussion on the issue. Uh, the show was successful. He got to go on America's Got Talent and appear on Dancing with the Stars, among many other things. And it was the talk show that sealed his showbiz legacy, showing the power of serving up confrontation and titillation with a wink and a smile. Eric, thanks so much for the insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins on Jerry Springer, who has died at 79. And now it's time for StoryCorps. 12-year-old Mason Best brought his mom, Roseanne Smith, to StoryCorps at the Boys Club of New York in Queens. He had a long list of questions for her and wasn't shy about jumping right in. What was your first impression of me? Cute. <laughs> what do you think of me as your mom? I think you're a good mom. A little too strict, but I know it's for good reasons because you want me to be successful in life. If I don't push you, who's going to push you? No one, and I understand that. If you can relive one day of your life, what would it be and why? 
Well, I think the time me and you got into our first argument because I think we could make a better. But, you know, like, you can't go back in time and change things because that will end up something else. And, you know. Right. You learn that in comics. I might say something accidentally and that could possibly affect my whole life. For example, if Why I... Why do you worry about the future so much? You're, so, you're only 12. Like, some of the things that you worry about, you shouldn't. I know, but... I protect you. I pay all the but bills. Not... I just want you to be a kid. But when you're not here, what am I supposed to do? Of course, you know, in 2020, I had cancer. And then I had the heart attack within six months of that, going through those health challenges to know that my heart is not the greatest. Well, to me, your heart is kind of on protein powder because how strong it is. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, because <laughs> I just keep going, yeah, right? It's, to me, it seems like it's on protein powder. What are you looking forward to in the future? A long life. I want to live to see my grandkids. I hope you give me some. You don't know if I'm very fit for love relationships? Let's not have this conversation. <laughs> you started the conversation. No, because no, I'm just saying. No, but I'm just saying I just want to know Because you don't that know. You don't know if I'm not, if I you really will. want. You will. You're a great guy. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be single. I get it. Also, I am prepped for being independent when I grow up. Cool. What's the best part of being my mom? Your spunkiness. What does spunky mean exactly? Your outgoing personality. And I like that no one dims your light. That's what I love about being your mom. That was Mason Best and his mother, Roseanne Smith, at StoryCorps in Queens, New York. I'm going to cry. Their conversation will be archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring a standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. This is NPR News. Coming up in five minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, former columnist E. Jean Carroll was cross-examined yesterday by former President Donald Trump's attorney. She's suing Trump for allegedly raping her in a department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. It's 8.29. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russian missile and drone strikes have killed at least 17 people in Ukraine. 
The country's interior ministry says most of those killed were in an apartment building in Uman. That's in the central part of the country, about 130 miles south of Kiev. The ministry says more than 20 cruise missiles were targeted at cities in the country early this morning in the first large-scale attack by the Russian military in nearly two months. The pandemic rule known as Title 42 expires in less than two weeks. The rule was meant to protect the U.S. from the coronavirus. It also makes it easier to expel migrants at the U.S. southern border. NPR's Joel Rose reports on what the Biden administration is doing to prepare for Title 42's expiration. The U.S. is going to stand up new migrant processing centers in Latin America, starting in Guatemala and Colombia. And these are places where migrants can learn if they qualify for legal pathways to the U.S. We also learned more yesterday about the enforcement end of all this. The administration says it's going to use what's called expedited removal under existing U.S. immigration law to quickly deport migrants who do not have valid asylum claims. Attorneys general in more than a dozen states, including Texas and Arizona, went to court last year to try to keep those restrictions in place. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering restoring voting rights to people incarcerated in the state. A bill proposal would remove a constitutional amendment which outlawed voting from prison while serving a felony sentence. Supporters hope to get the measure before voters on the statewide ballot in 2026. A Cambridge music venue will receive a one-day liquor license suspension that comes as a patron claimed staff at the Sinclair didn't properly attend to concerns that she'd been drugged. The patron said she was never offered medical assistance after she alerted staff during an event last fall. The Cambridge License Commission voted unanimously this week to issue a one-day suspension. An exact date will be determined in the coming weeks. Worcester is hoping it won't strike out on a new festival that brings together two popular pastimes. WBUR Samantha Kutsia reports the city is hosting the first-ever National Baseball Poetry Festival. It's the culmination of National Poetry Month and the baseball season. For three days, baseball poets will gather in the city for open mics and poetry competitions. Stephen Biondelillo helped create the festival. He says he's trying to get people around the world involved. We've already received submissions of poems into our contest from Canada and Israel, as well as from throughout the United States. And I'm expecting that we'll see many more poets from all over America and the world, in fact, uh, submitting poetry to, to be part of this festival. If you're not the biggest fan of poetry, there will also be games between the Woo Sox and the Yankees AAA affiliate throughout the weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics are celebrating a victory. The team defeated the Atlanta Hawks last night by eight points. That sends them to the second round of the NBA playoffs. The Seas now have the weekend off. They face the Philadelphia 76ers on Monday at home at the Garden. The Bruins will hit the ice in Florida at 7.30 tonight for Game 6 of their playoff run. A win against the Panthers would close out the series and send the Bees into Round 2. And the Red Sox will host the Cleveland Guardians at home tonight at Fenway.
In your forecast, near 60 today under mostly sunny skies. Some clouds move in tonight and it'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy, low 50s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. The clouds stick around on Sunday and will likely give way to rain in the afternoon. It'll be back near 60. It's 50 degrees right now in Boston at 834. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The writer E. Jean Carroll stuck to her story yesterday under cross-examination. Carroll says Donald Trump sexually assaulted her in the dressing room of a department store in the 1990s and then defamed her when she went public. Now she's giving testimony and faced Trump's lawyers in federal court. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in the courthouse yesterday. Andrea, Good morning. Good morning. And I guess we should note this is graphic testimony. How effective was the cross-examination of that testimony? Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, tried to draw out flaws that E. Jean Carroll didn't go to the police, didn't go to a doctor, didn't document the attack in her diary, couldn't remember exactly when it occurred. But Carroll, who is 79, stood by her account. After a joking encounter in a Bergdorf Goodman's, Trump, quote, shoved me so hard my head banged and then, quote, jammed his fingers inside her before penetrating her with his penis. Mm. Takapina tried to draw out inconsistencies in her behavior, why she laughed when she called her first friend, why she couldn't remember emails she sent, why she told two friends but never talked about it again. And Carol responded, she felt ashamed and afraid she wouldn't be believed and had only been motivated to come forward many years later after Harvey Weinstein's rapes were exposed in 2018 and the Me Too movement was launched. I guess she would also have to talk about the defamation part of this case. She says Trump defamed her in far more recent years. Yesterday morning, she detailed some of the things Trump has said about her, calling her a liar who's in it for political reasons or to sell books. In his cross-examination, Trump attorney Joe Tacopina brought up those same issues, suggesting she was a liar and was plotting to increase book sales for money and political ends. At one point, Tacopina tried to suggest there was an inconsistency between Carol saying she felt ashamed and saying she felt afraid because Trump was powerful, rich, famous, and as one of her friends put it, he has 200 lawyers. But Carol pushed back, saying, quote, I was afraid Donald Trump would retaliate, which is exactly what he did. He has two tables full of lawyers here today. How does it affect this case at all that it happens in the middle of a presidential campaign and involves a presidential candidate? So Trump earlier this week posted another social media attack on Carol, as did his son Eric. And of course, that's Trump's usual M.O., to bully, belittle, and discredit people who criticize him or try to hold him to account. We saw that in the 2016 campaign, in the White House, in the 2020 campaign. We're seeing it now in this trial. But this isn't a political campaign. We are in a federal court with tens of millions of dollars in reputational damage potentially at stake. The judge has already admonished Trump's lawyers that he could be opening himself up to additional claims if he continues to attack Carol. 
Very briefly, where does this case go in days ahead? There will be more cross-examination. We will hear from people she confided in, from two other women who say they were assaulted in a similar manner. The jury will view the Access Hollywood tape where Trump boasted about grabbing women by the genitals because when you're a star, they let you do it. Videotaped testimony of Trump's deposition. Case could go to a jury, possibly by the end of next week. And Pierce Andrew Bernstein, thanks so much. Thank you. In southern Turkey, people are still searching for the remains of their missing loved ones, more than two and a half months after earthquakes killed tens of thousands. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports from the city of Antakya, where crews continue to use heavy equipment to clear the rubble. Posters of missing people line the gates outside of the city's main courthouse. It's too damaged to use and now operates out of portable containers. Earthquake survivors are lined up to file damage claims and missing person reports. Jihad Achikalan is the head of the Hatay Bar Association, that's the province that oversees Antakya. He says there are around 500 cases in this city alone, and the reasons are complicated. You've seen for yourself how bad it is. The earthquake was so strong. And because of the delay in search and rescue and in the chaos of the aftermath, people mistakenly took and buried bodies that were not their relatives or friends. He also says they expect more bodies to be found as machines continue to clear rubble. There were also entire families who died that night, so it's hard to know how many are missing from a family when there are no surviving members to notify us. Many people here were buried without identification in the first days after the quake. Others were rushed to hospitals also without ID and are now slowly being reunited with surviving family. But for those who are searching for missing loved ones, like Osman Tanar, it's been grueling and painful. I reach him over the phone because, like most survivors, he's left Antakya and is staying with friends in a town a few hours away. When the earthquake hit, Tanar and his family carried their children out of the apartment as their building crumbled behind them. As soon as he was able, he headed to check on his brother and saw their building had been completely destroyed. I saw my brother's furniture in the rubble, but I couldn't see him or his family or hear from them. We waited day and night as rescue teams worked for six days to recover survivors and bodies, and then they left. And we were left there with six other families who couldn't find their relatives dead or alive. They searched hospitals and graveyards in several provinces to no avail. They've also handed their DNA samples to forensic investigators and are now awaiting results. Ahmed Hilal, a forensics professor at Chukurova University and the head of Turkey's Forensic Medicine Association, says thousands of missing people have been identified so far via DNA samples. Few of them survivors. He says, according to official numbers, there are around 1,200 people still missing in the quake zone. But Hilal says several fires broke out in the rubble, making it even harder to find or identify remains. And that's why Osman Tanar, the man searching for his brother's family, wants authorities to go through the rubble of his brother's building again and more carefully. 
We know there was a fire somewhere in my brother's building after it collapsed. The concrete was warm in some areas. Maybe they will find a piece of bone and then we can say our family died in a fire in the rubble. And we can take that bone and bury it in a grave. It's been a long and painful process for more than two months, he says. He's tired. And every time they think they found a trace, he raises his hopes, only to have them crushed again. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Antakya, Turkey. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, as college tuition continues to rise, more families are struggling to figure out where their kids should go to college and how to pay for it. In your forecast, mostly sunny, breezy, and upper 50s today. It grows cloudy tonight and falls to the upper 40s. The clouds will hang around all weekend. Overcast and low 50s on Saturday with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Still overcast and upper 50s on Sunday with showers likely afternoon. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 843. WBUR supporters include Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. A new report shows Massachusetts companies are making progress toward gender equity in higher positions. The report from the EOS Foundation shows companies like Moderna and Vertex Pharmaceuticals have women in positions of power. The report also finds that the TJ Maxx parent company and Bright Horizons have at least 50 percent women on their boards. Natick-based Middlesex Savings Bank has a new CEO. Dana Nishi was previously the company's chief operating officer. Her promotion makes Middlesex Savings Bank the largest in Massachusetts to be led by a woman. The Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology is getting money from the state to prepare students to work in a green economy. Over $2 million will go to building a center for energy efficiency and the trades. School officials tell the Boston Business Journal that courses will be taught with sustainability and renewable energy in mind. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Rafi and his Beluga grads live at the Orpheum on May 7th. Proceeds benefit the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring. LiveNation.com. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The price of higher education keeps increasing, and tuition hikes at many colleges and universities are expected to continue. The price tag often plays a big part in people's decisions about where to enroll. But there is some good news, and NPR's Alyssa Nedwerney has it. 
Despite the hard financial decisions families are making this spring, tuition is is nowhere near keeping up with inflation. Robert Kelchin studies student financial aid and college finance at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. The last three or four years have seen some of the smallest tuition increases in decades. The other good news, that sticker price, the big number on a college website, very few families actually pay that. Only about one in six students actually pay the the sticker price at a four-year institution. Philip Levine is an economics professor at Wellesley College. He has new research looking at what most students do pay. The price, minus grants and scholarships, sometimes called the net cost, or as Levine says, the real price of college. In the end, the real price of college after adjusting for inflation has actually been falling. He drilled down on selective colleges, often those with really big sticker prices, and found the same trend. You know, families are paying you know roughly 20% less than they did seven or eight years ago. The federal Pell Grant, which is money for low-income students, will also increase for next fall. The maximum amount will be just over $7,000 a year, thanks to Congress, though the Biden administration had unsuccessfully pushed to double that amount. But all this seemingly good news comes as families are struggling with rising rents and high costs of goods. So when that happens, then you just have less money left to pay for things. Sandy Baum is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. She says with inflation so high, anything that's a big part of your budget, say college tuition, is going to be painful. So you don't need an increase in college prices for people to feel strained paying for college. Millions of students are struggling to make this math work right now. Neve Fleming, a high school senior in Washington, D.C., got into 13 colleges. But she's not exactly celebrating. I don't know how to feel about it anymore because I used to be so happy to receive congratulations in the mail. But recently, that happiness turned to sadness as she realized even after all her financial aid, the cost of college was still way more than her family could pay. Yes, I like the schools. I applied to them. I got into them. But I can't go to them. She pulls up a spreadsheet tracking all of her college's details. Okay, so I have the numbers up. The sticker price, the scholarships, and how much she's expected to pay. The least amount that I would have to pay for one of my colleges is 9000 And $9,000 was just too much. She's the oldest of four kids and determined not to take out student loans. I don't want that in my life at all. I know what it does to people. So her plan now? apply to even more schools and see if she can make the money work. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the disconnect between how Americans are feeling about the economy and how the U.S. economy is actually doing. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Zachary Logan Remembrance. 
featuring drawings and sculpture that use the language of flowers to meditate on the nature of life, death, and rebirth, Canadian artist Zachary Logan unlocks new ways of understanding nature and ourselves. Closes May 7th. Tickets at PEM.org. Poet Camille Dungy has transformed her suburban Colorado garden into a pollinator paradise. In her new memoir, she explains how it sprouted questions of race, family, and the planet. It's a very different set of questions for how to build a sustainable world if I think about it from my house. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Biden administration announces new immigration policies, including tougher enforcement at the border. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking military information remains in federal custody pending trial. And the president of South Korea continues his U.S. visit today in Massachusetts. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Enjoy the dry weather on this Friday before what looks like a wet weekend arrives. We'll have clear skies and temperatures near 60 today. The clouds move in tonight as it falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, overcast and low 50s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday, near 60 and cloudy with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 851. Did you know average income in America's poorest state, Mississippi, adjusted for purchasing power, is higher than in France? Should we count our economic blessings? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. And by VBrick. VBrick unlocks the power of video for customers' business processes. VBrick.com slash marketplace to learn more. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Pollsters find four-fifths of Americans expect their kids to be worse off than they are. And in a poll earlier this spring, our friends over at NPR and PBS found only 38 percent approve of President Biden's handling of the economy. Yet here's The Economist magazine arguing these worries obscure what it calls a stunning success story. Here on What We're Missing is the editor of The Economist magazine, Zanny minton Beddoes. Good to see you. Very nice to see you, too. Great to be here. So help us be happier about our economy. America has some key strengths, right? It absolutely has some key strengths. And first, let me start by saying I completely agree with you that one of the few things that both Democrats and Republicans agree on is that the economy is in a mess and poll after poll tells you that people are feeling unhappy. But if you go back and look at how the U.S. economy has been performing, which is what we did in this cover story, it's actually a remarkable story. And it's a remarkable story of outperformance relative to other rich economies. If you look at GDP, the U.S. in 1990 was 25% of world GDP. It's now about the same, despite the rise of China. And it's a much bigger share of the rich world than it used to be. It's also much wealthier than West European economies or Japan, the other big industrialized economies. It's grown faster. And on all of the ingredients of growth, whether it's productivity, whether it's the education of its workforce, it is actually pulling ahead faster relative to Western Europe and Japan. 
Right. And right now there are some people listening to us sputtering, saying, okay, Zanny mentioned gross domestic product, and she mentioned a lot of measures of prosperity, but she didn't mention life expectancy in America, which in the Economist article acknowledges is going the wrong way. Absolutely. And that, look, the U.S. has a terrible opioid crisis, you know, awful. But I don't think industrial policy is the way to address the opioid crisis. The U.S. has serious social challenges. Don't misunderstand me. You know, I lived here for most of my adult life. What we were doing in this article was not to be kind of Panglossian about it. We were saying that just it's worth looking at how well this economy has performed. And it's worth understanding why it's performed so well. And then I think it's worth concluding from that, what are the kind of policies that perhaps shape the social safety net, but which don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg, which don't undermine the strengths that are this economy. And what worries me is that the more right now Americans think their economy is a problem, the more politicians are being pushed to the kinds of policies that over the next 20, 30 years may actually mess it up. Yeah. And you see that among conservatives and liberals on things like trade policy. Absolutely. And if it had no consequences, then it wouldn't matter so much. But the kinds of policies that both sides are now talking about, like tariffs, like more protectionism, that really risks undercutting the engine that has been the U.S. economy. Zanny Minton Beddoes, editor of The Economist, talking about the recent issue with the illustration of a cowboy on a tall-legged horse with the headline, Riding High, the Lessons of America's Astonishing Economy. Zanny, always good to talk to you. Very good to talk to you too, David. We also drill down deeper on an elephant standing here, economic inequality. Marketplace.org, if you missed that part of the interview on the air today. Markets S&P futures are down three-tenths percent. There's word the inflation indicator favored by central bankers fell sharply in March. This PCE inflation is now running at just 4.2 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant helps reduce meeting fatigue by automatically taking live meeting notes, capturing slides, generating summaries, and assigning action items. More at otter.ai. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Two senior executives at the company that makes Bud Light are now on leave. They'd overseen the beer brand's collaboration with a transgender actress and social media influencer. Bud Light sponsored two Instagram posts by Dylan Mulvaney, a trans woman, and also sent her a can with her picture on it. Some customers responded with anti-trans comments and are boycotting Bud Light. The news editor at the publication Ad Age, E.J. Schultz, is following this closely. Welcome. Good to be here. What have you learned about these executives, Bud Light's VP Marketing and an Anheuser-Busch VP of Marketing, both on leave now? From your information, were they ordered to stand down or how did it work? It's a little bit cloudy. They originally portrayed this as a leave. They didn't really go into details in terms of if it was by choice or forced. Some news has been reported later by some other publications that it was not by choice. And I see data that Bud Light sales fell 17 percent compared to the same week a year earlier. Do you have a sense about whether this will affect the way other brands proceed in their willingness to embrace LGBTQ plus people? Other brands are absolutely watching this. The early sales returns show that the people that are upset over this are actually having an impact. And it really speaks to how the political winds are shifting when it comes to transgender issues. We've seen, of course, 
legislation introduced across many states around transgender rights and trying to curb those rights. And so brands have suddenly become targeted as part of this larger debate. It's difficult from the outside to parse exactly where the company stands on this. The company's defended its partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, saying in a statement it works with hundreds of influencers across brands as one of many ways to authentically connect with audiences across various demographics, unquote. But then these executives are now on leave, which seems to tug in a different direction in terms of what kind of message the company is sending. Right. Outside of that original statement, they've since sort of really walked, if not sprinted, away from this issue because of the heat they're feeling from distributors. They're almost in the middle because they've even gotten criticism from more on the left of, hey, why haven't you come out and had a more robust statement on transgender rights? They've really just said nothing specific since this has happened. E.J. Schultz is news editor at Ad Age. Thank you very much. Great being here. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Duller and Nick Esposito. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Clear skies in upper 50s today, upper 40s tonight, and skies grow overcast, making way for a cloudy Saturday in the low 50s. It's 53 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.